Welcome back to Hot Off the Pod. I'm your co-host, Harper Lambert. And I'm Melanie Zement. Before we start, we want to issue a content warning. This episode contains discussions about sexual assault and sexual violence. On this podcast so far, we've been discussing issues that are important to UCSB students. And one of the larger issues that students care most about is sexual assault on campus. A few weeks ago, Students Against Sexual Assault hosted a Zoom event with UCSB grad Chanel Miller, who is a survivor of sexual assault and the author of the 2019 best-selling novel, Know My Name, which offered a safe space for conversations about sexual assault among UCSB students. Though there has been much conversation and progress on the issue in the last few years, there is still so much work to be done. One of the groups at the forefront of the ongoing project to strengthen sexual assault prevention and education is the student-led nonprofit Students Against Sexual Assault. Today's guest is Deborah Williams, who is the president of SASA's nonprofit organization. In 2020, Deborah graduated from UCSB with a degree in political science. Over the course of her college career, she was involved with several legal and advocacy organizations including the pre-law professional co-ed fraternity and UCSB's mock trial team of which she was vice president. Currently, she is preparing to go to law school where she hopes to specialize in family law. So Deborah, welcome to the podcast. Hello, everyone. It's great to be here. I'm so excited and honored you'd want to speak with me on behalf of SASA. So we're all we're all like really looking forward to speaking today. The honor is all ours. Before we get into your work at SASA, I wanted to talk about the climate of sexual assault prevention at the university level, because in the past five or six years, I feel like we've seen this issue reach national prominence in a way that it hasn't before. So I wanted to open this up to both of you. What are some of the moments that have shaped and defined this phenomenon for you in the past few years? I can start. For me, I just remember in 2015, the documentary The Hunting Ground came out and that really just shattered my world. I was in high school at the time. And I think that same year, a student at Columbia named Emma Solkowitz started the Carry That Weight mattress performance project. So I remember that was making headlines. And then, of course, uh, Chanel Miller's impact statement in 2016, which preceded her memoir? I would say for me, what's really shaped my involvement with sexual assault advocacy was pretty informal at the beginning. So a lot of my concerns and struggles stemmed from more of a racial background and standpoint than my sexuality and my gender, mainly because that intersectionality was very intertwined in how I was perceived, how I was treated. So it didn't matter if I was a woman, I was always seen as a black woman. Therefore, I was always degraded and validated and positioned in a very specific way for a very long time, still am. But obviously now I have more language, more strength, more power, more courage to speak my truth, to stand up for myself, defend other communities, my community. I would say that the debut of Euphoria unlocked this Pandora's box of memories from elementary school through high school of my own personal experiences, a lot of close friends and family member experiences, because that was just such a raw depiction 
of how dangerous and harmful things like addiction, things like sexual assault, things like abuse, those things are so normalized. But at that point in time, it just feels like you're getting older. Like these are the rites of passage by which we grow up and mature. Not these are the traumatizing events that will shape how I perceive the world and how I'm perceived in the world. Because all of those experiences, all of those events, they shape and mold your identity. They shape and mold the person that you choose to become, how you treat others, what your values and your morals align with politically. And that was very recent. And, you know, that show aired. And then I also would say in 2019, when Sigma Pi was ousted and all of their sexual assault allegations came out, the young women who came forward um, anonymously, even if some of their names were mentioned, I, you know, not going to disclose or anything like that. But that for me kind of jump started this desire to get more involved while I saw the time. I was already a senior, so I kind of felt like it was a little too late because I hadn't done any work in an organization capacity. And I was only one person. And that just seems like an insurmountable, huge, just looming force. But I had this class and it was very lenient in what I could write about for research in terms of public safety and the public safety issue that plagues most college campuses is sexual harassment, sexual violence, sexual assault. So I went to a sexual assault town hall because SASA started those. Um, Their first one was in 2018. So I went to their fall 2019 sexual assault town hall. And I was very, very inspired by the president and director of not only the nonprofit, but also the UCSB chapter, Aaliyah Reynolds. She's now the VP still for SASA. And watching her and all of the other students call out and hold accountable the different stakeholders of alumni affairs, of undergraduate affairs, of graduate affairs, really inspired me to kind of do my own work as an individual until they asked me to come on board like later in my senior year. So that was my first like introduction into having these more open and honest conversations about sexual assault and sexual violence. I would kind of echo what Harper said about Chanel Miller's book, because I think that as women who attended UCSB, it is eerily familiar. And that kind of made me start thinking about these issues a lot more in depth. Just to give a background of the landscape of sexual assault prevention and education, just from a legal standpoint, in the last few years during the Obama administration, there was an expansion of the definition of Title IX, which is the federal civil rights law preventing gender-based discrimination that was enacted in 1972. But under Obama, that definition was expanded to include sexual violence. And it also was accompanied by an explanation of how institutions are responsible in doing this prevention and educational work. And then at the same time, At the UC level, uh, the former president, Janet Napolitano, formed a task force to unify sexual assault policies at different UC campuses. And that included establishing the CARE office, which is campus advocacy resources and education at all of the UCs, and adopting an affirmative consent standard, which wasn't there before. So 
Deborah, I kind of wanted to ask, can you give us an overview or a general idea of what kinds of resources are available for students at UCSB or within the UCs regarding response to sexual violence? That's a really good question. I'm actually really glad you asked that because one of the main things that I pinpointed as a major issue at UCSB and at all college campuses is the fact that there is very little collaboration between the different responsive task force of sexual assault. So students don't know how to report. They don't know where to report. They don't know where to go. A lot of these entities don't jumpstart conversations and collaborations with each other, which is at the detriment to students, undergraduate and graduate. And so one thing that I focused on when I was doing my research paper is talking to all of these entities. I didn't get to talk to Title IX, which didn't really affect my findings, mainly because Title IX isn't the first and only resource for a survivor. If anything, you know, we really emphasize spaces that call for healing, that are more survivor-centered, that are more geared towards responding to the survivor's wishes and not adhering to very stringent, narrow, and oftentimes triggering processes. So CARE, as you mentioned, is one of those. CARE is an amazing resource. Unfortunately, a lot of times, as you know, this year has been going on because of COVID, their financial resources have been kind of slim. And, you know, with some people need that kind of in-person interaction when it comes to talking or, you know, getting therapy. If you went to CAPS, for example, we really emphasize how healing from sexual violence and mental health kind of go hand in hand with the stigmas breaking down around mental health as of recently, you know, that's, that's really good. We really emphasize non-punitive, non-retributive capital punishment in terms of pursuing justice. So things like prisons, things like, you know, life sentences, things like that, those aren't always in response to the survivor's wishes. A lot of times what it is, is finding the person or the institution accountable and them genuinely acknowledging the wrong that they did, the harm that was done and how they are going to do better. And then us watching them doing better. So, you know, you have CARE, you have CAPS. Most campuses have the counseling and psychological services centers on campus. It might sound a little different or look a little different on every campus. Also, I don't know how many people know this, but it's someone that I got the pleasure of meeting and speaking with when I was doing research. We have an interpersonal violence investigator, Detective Kavina Avila. She was employed and discharged by the IVCSD to handle cases of domestic and sexual violence. IVCSD, can you just say what that is really quickly for people who don't know? Yeah, IVCSD is the Isla Vista Community Service District. Also, a lot of those members are former UCSB students, so a lot of them run for elected offices. I was going to run for a position, actually, until SASA recruited me. But yeah, so IVCSD partnered with UCPD and they have a full time, they have actually two, they have two detectives who work in this interpersonal violence unit, but that's not something a lot of people know about. I did not know about that until senior year. 
And so I think a lot of times it's unfortunate because you detectives are part of the police force and police are not an avenue for a lot of communities, especially marginalized communities, especially women. Those aren't people that have historically had the resources and the language and the tools to do what they need to do to address a survivor's needs. That's just not how it's gone. So fortunately, Detective Kavina takes a very survivor-centered approach and she utilizes modern training and practices from sexual assault organizations so that she is up to date on how she approaches survivors, perpetrators, witnesses, victims, um, and the like. So a lot of times it's just a kind of like a bridging, a bridging the gap between like institutionalized, you know, resources and more advocacy, grassroots, community-based um, resources, because they, they definitely need to have more of those conversations so that they're learning from each other. One, obviously learning more from one than the other, but you know, there's definitely things that both entities can learn from each other. According to a UCSB conducted report during the 2019-2020 school year, there were 164 total reports of alleged student violations of the UC policy made to the Title IX office. But of those, after looking into them, they found that 161 did not meet the standard of investigation. What does a number like that kind of tell us about the efficacy of current response systems? Right. So I think one important thing to remember when we're looking at the numbers and the data that we find is the prevalence of underreporting, because that drastically affects and diminishes the data that is available to us. So I want to talk about two things in underreporting and the available data that we have in terms of Title IX cases. So people from SASA and other interested students have conducted their own climate survey of sexual violence and sexual harassment on UCSB's campus specifically. That climate survey was conducted for the first time from 2018 to 2019. We have just been able to start researching and publishing our 2020 findings. Those should be available in a few months on our website. But so far what we found is 25% of UCSB undergrad respondents reported being sexually assaulted. So a fourth, a fourth of students. And those are only the students who answered that survey. So that, that's probably more, but at least at the least there's a fourth. And then 34% of UCSB undergrad respondents reported being sexually harassed. And when you hear those percentages, alarm bells go off, like those are pretty significant numbers, but those numbers are still not completely representative. These just give us an idea. They're not making claims about UCSB. They're not in conjunction with any research. This is just raw data of people who said, yes, I was sexually assaulted. Yes, I was sexually harassed during my time at UCSB. And already it's over 25% for both numbers. So you hear the cases from Title IX, and most of them don't meet that standard. And also with that standard, which was just kind of adopted this new UC-based process, because you have the Department of Education process, which is implemented by the Trump administration, mainly by Betsy DeVos. It's extremely, extremely narrow. It's extremely triggering. It requires things like having the survivor 
testify, being cross-examined by opposing counsel, which includes the perpetrator's defense, sometimes even the perpetrators themselves, if they don't have defense counsel, then they can be the ones crossing, giving an opening, making their claims. And so, you know, a lot of times what has to happen is when you go and report, that doesn't mean there's going to be a report filed. That doesn't mean they're going to accept it. That does not mean anything's going to happen, which is why when we tell people report, a lot of times it's like to who? Do I report to the police? That's not always an option. That's not always a safe haven for people. Okay, do I report to Title IX? They won't always accept a report and they have the grounds legally to do that, not just institutionally, but by state law and by federal laws. So it's really upsetting because we advocate for new amendments and new legislation and new change, but it is on each university to do the work. And thus far, I've personally have yet to see the necessary work being done to address these increasing numbers, increasing numbers that we don't even have a full grasp of because not all students want to report, not all students know how to, and not all students should. That's also another you know, myth. It's like everyone has to report when they were sexually harassed, when they were sexually assaulted. That is not for anyone but the survivor to make. That choice is solely up to that person. So even if we had all of these measures in place, someone's healing process doesn't always require or find reporting necessary. Right. And what I think this speaks to is that we've learned that it isn't enough to rely on institutions, even if they have all of the monetary resources and the sort of executing power to carry out what is actually best for survivors. And I think that's also because sexual assault is a cultural issue. It's a pervasive problem with college life, with American society. It goes beyond that. So how does SASA address this confluence of different forces that really contributes to this issue? So I think one project that really speaks to how we're planning to combat a lot of the ingrained cultural issues of why the culture of sexual violence exists is promoting the reality of intersectionality. So a lot of times when you hear sexual assault, a certain person or image comes to your head, it might be and that a lot of that has to do with white supremacy and the patriarchy. Um, in America, a lot of times, you know, you would have incorrect claims of black men sexually assaulting white women. We've seen Emmett Till, the exonerated five, which is wasn't even that long ago. And a lot of times sexual violence happens not just with white women. It happens with women of color. It happens with non-binary people. It happens with men. It happens with children. The age, the, the sexuality, the gender, it does not matter. The people who perpetrate these types of crimes are seeking to take power away from someone else. And a lot of that power comes from the patriarchy and those who benefit from it, which unfortunately is predominantly men. But 
a lot of times resources for male survivors do not exist because of, again, of the patriarchy and that narrative that, you know, you're, you're strong, you're a man, there's no way that someone could overpower you and take your masculinity. We started partnering with um, another nonprofit called URGE, and that stands for United for Reproductive and Gender Equity. We follow them on Instagram and they also have been very supportive in a lot of our legislative and policy endeavors, but we actually are collaborating with them on a consent project. And it's in the form of an animation film right now. And we're hoping to present that to the university and to other universities to utilize in their sexual violence education efforts. And with that storyline, just to give you guys a like, super small sneak peek, we feature people from different backgrounds in terms of their identity, their sexual identity, their ethnic or racial identity. And mainly that's because a lot of those conversations aren't had. It's usually very like Eurocentric, very white. And, you know, a lot of times you don't hear about a non-binary Asian woman experiencing sexual violence from a friend or from a lover or, you know, from an acquaintance. And a lot of times as a statistics show, the person who is the perpetrator is someone you know. And so I think talking about the people who are the survivors from a survivor standpoint is important because a lot of survivors are overlooked because they're not included in these conversations. The nuances of their experiences are never addressed because the people who are talking about their issues aren't from those communities. Those communities aren't given the space. They're not given the access. They're not given the language. Instead of saying, I wanna be a voice for them, just give them the microphone. And so I think that's really important to remember when you're doing sexual uh, violence advocacy work is remembering why you're doing the work. It's to make sure that this culture is broken down from within and then you can start working out. But a lot of times the people who are in that community are the survivors themselves and we don't know their stories because we're not giving them the place to. So this consent project is giving voice of different types of people and their different experiences and perspectives of sexual violence within a friend group. Because a lot of times those are the places where allyship and education needs to show up when you know someone, if not more. Because it's easy to advocate for a stranger. You don't know their name, they won't know your name and there's no stakes involved. But if it's a close friend, if it's an ex, you know, the accountability there starts to waver with people because they think, well, I know them, so it, it's different, but it's not. You know, relationships are complex, but decisions do not have to be. So I think that's one thing that we try to act on in SASA. Yeah, absolutely. And just a little bit more on this educational video project. Is this something that you're hoping will replace Gaucho FYI, which for listeners who don't know, Gaucho FYI is the mandatory sexual assault prevention program. It's a seminar that uh, I believe all freshmen at UCSB are mandated to attend. So is that the is that the overarching goal or is it just to supplement that? Yes, we're going for more of a supplemental approach just because we do believe that it is better to work with these institutions and 
take a more of a yes and approach. Yes, Gacha FYI offers a lot of statistics, but students don't want to be lectured to. That's not a responsive teaching style to a lot of people. Interactive and kinesthetic learning is how a lot of us were trained in growing up and that's still how a lot of us learn. Something a little more palpable, digestible, and just in layman's terms, a lot of these words we throw around, whether it's in a professional space or even in academic space can be very exclusive. And so when you're in a friend group or when you're talking to students or just amongst yourself in a classroom, you're not just rattling off all of these trigger words you read in a book. You're talking in very, very conversational layman's terms. And so that's why we think supplementing something that's very ed educational, very by the book and giving the facts is good to kind of, okay, let's follow up in a real world situation. You know, everyone has found them or most people have found themselves within a friend group and something as troubling as this has arisen at one point or another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that hopefully this also expands on this idea that like, you only have to do this sort of educational program once when you're a freshman, which also kind of creates this strange idea that like, that's a rite of passage of college. Like, okay, you check your box. Now you can walk through the gates and like expect to see this happen when like, no, it's an ongoing problem. And it doesn't go away after like freshman year, nobody walked into UCSB and never having heard of assault. And then they leave this 45 minute thing all the wiser. Kind of turning towards SASA and the creation of SASA. Who founded it? Why did you guys get started? What's the goals? Fortunately, the founders, or at least one of the founders, is still on the nonprofit board. Her name is Emily Montalpo Telford. She is our HER coordinator. HER stands for Historian Education and Research. She is the founder of the nonprofit and the UCSB chapter. SASA also has a couple more sister chapters at Santa Barbara City College, at UC Santa Cruz, and we hope to get SASA on a couple more UC campuses later on, maybe this year, maybe next year, who reached out to us. But yeah, so SASA is a 501c3 nonprofit. They decided to create the nonprofit out of a responsiveness to how the university was engaging in discourse with the UCSB chapter. There's a lot of things that UCSB or UC-based entities cannot do. So as a nonprofit, you can hold universities accountable. You can hold stakeholders, individuals accountable. We were able to post a statement directly naming and addressing interim chief Brock from the UCPD and UCPD themselves. I was able to talk to a couple of lieutenants, email correspondence. It just gives you more leeway to do a lot of more advocacy work on a local level, state level. And that's something that is important when you're talking about action and allyship and advocacy. It's, it's work, you know, it's doing things. So as a nonprofit, where do you guys get most of your funding? Up until this year, a lot of it has been from the pockets of the nonprofit members themselves. So because it's a nonprofit, it's all volunteer based. We don't get paid, but we obviously need money to run the nonprofit and, you know, fund our sexual assault lobby days to pay the people that do content for us because this is a very thankless job and we try to give back to the community, the survivors, the survivor advocates, things like that. So 
this year, fortunately, we were able to be granted some funding from AS themselves. So AS went ahead and funded our UCSB chapter, and they went ahead and allocated those funds to the nonprofit because we do have more leeway to hire independent contractors, do more local and state level projects. And so through that funding, we're able to pay certain people, buy, you know, subscriptions for our magazine, which is content education based. Also, it's going to start calling on for more like artists and op-eds from Santa Barbara, UCSB students, because again, giving back to the community that we, you know, are from. And so, yeah, I think all of our funding is, is hopefully in the future will be from grants, but we were able to get um, AS funding this year, also from HRB, Human Rights Board. They have done so, so, so much work with us and have supported us along the way. Seems like you guys are firing on all cylinders. Yeah. <laughs> so based on your website, you guys are kind of taking a multifaceted approach, including legislative policy, partnering with other orgs, as you've said. What's the logic behind this approach? I would say that a multifaceted approach is more responsive to the way that sexual assault is pervasive in our culture. I would say that not everyone has the means or the access to be an advocate or a lobbyist in Sacramento or DC. Not everyone has the time or the creativity to write articles and op-eds and create art digitally for an entire magazine. I think each approach and project and collaboration we do speaks to a different part of advocacy and a different level of what survivor-centered activism is about. I think there's no one way that completely encompasses advocacy. I think solely doing legislative and policy work would be a disservice to the people who don't want to present themselves to an assembly member or senator as a survivor, or they don't have the time or the money to do trips like that. So I think that doing a lot of these different projects also is a lot of experience for people like me, who this is kind of like, I jumped in heads first, didn't know what to expect. And so I find I have certain strengths in other areas where I lack in others. And that's when my cohorts and colleagues pick up that slack for me. So it's like, I've never been to lobby day. So a lot of my lobby training is going to be happening soon, which I'm really excited for. Whereas like, I'm very, very good at writing, at public speaking, doing statements, correspondence. I'm very, I love doing that work. I'm very outspoken. And so I feel like there I can thrive. I can thrive from talking about let's have a meeting with these people who, you know, we want to get money from, or we need them to be on board with these amendments. I'm like, yes, let's do it. And I'm going to work with I, and I'm going to ask them, well, what are you doing to actually be an advocate? You say that you want to be a support system for survivors. Where is that? Where is it at? Mm -hmm. and, um, I'm yeah. So just like not having that fear of like looking someone in their eye and asking them like what needs to be asked. That's just where I shine. And so I think that's what's helpful about all these different approaches. Some people are, can take the forefront in some places and others in other places. And it just also is more of like a collaborative leader situation. There's no, there's, it's not like a business and there's not like a top C like I'm not like president is loose. It's just there because we have to legally 
nonprofit. I do not feel like I'm so modest. Okay. <laughs> I do not. I I merely I'm for every every person on that board, and I'm just I'm there to, as like a face. And at the end of the day, I I really feel like each person on the board is president of their own work that they do because that's their own work. And I'm not gonna take all the credit as obviously as a team. That's that's what it is. But I like giving credit where credits due. So I like that there's different approaches to advocacy. Speaking of the legislative side of your advocacy work on February 11th, SASA made an exciting announcement, which is that your organization is co-sponsoring something called the Greek Act with California State Assembly member Freddie Rodriguez. Can you tell us about the Greek Act and what SASA is hoping to accomplish with it? Yes. So the Greek Act, which was just introduced, we are super excited about that. So Greek Act, the word act is in all capital letters because it's also an acronym for accountability, change, and transparency, which is what we are hoping this bill will do. So as co-authors of this bill's language, we were asked to review the bill and when it was first introduced and then it got tabled because of COVID, it was first AB 1155, but now it's AB 524. This is all until, you know, the office gets back to us and after, you know, the education policy committees review it and everything like that. But what SASA is open and willing to support is a bill that requires Greek life institutions, so fraternities and sororities, to make public not only reports of sexual assault that they reported to police, but also any accounts that they reported to the fraternities and sororities themselves, whether they were on the grounds, whether they were at any chapter satellite houses, and if they include a fraternity and sorority member. A lot of other public information, not including their names, because we are not calling for students to be doxxed, canceled, outed. That's that's not what we want. That's actually, it's also very dangerous. What we want is fraternities to make available the statistics and the cases and the data so that when students enter into UCSB and they look up and they're looking to join a fraternity or sorority, that information of the sexual assault safety is made known because a lot of times they'll have some type of risk management type deal going on. And obviously those risks are not being managed if the problem is still here. We do not know where these incidents are taking place. There's no accountability for it. There's no transparency for it. A lot of it just ends up being covered up, ignored. And then, you know, a lot of times survivors are blindsided because then somehow their identities get out. And so I think in this way, it puts the responsibility back on the institutions that are perpetuating this culture. It is on you to do something about it, especially if you want to continue and grow and thrive, it shouldn't be at the expense of other people. And that that just needs to be a requirement. And that's exactly why, you know, something like a bill is the thing that'll get that done because you can't argue with the law. I guess you can, obviously, that's why attorneys exist, but fraternities and sororities, they have these commitments to wanting to be spaces that support survivors. It's like, well, then being transparent about the sexual assault that occurs within your walls is one way to do that. Right. And this is pretty bold legislation. As far as I know, I've never heard of anything similar being adopted before. What 
if anything, do you think are going to be some of the bigger challenges in getting this bill passed? One thing we thought about was the funding. So a lot of times organizations or institutions say, no, we can't make these changes. It's too much money. We don't have that much money. So one thing that SASA is prepared to address is, well, we'll do the grunt work. We'll, we'll create the survey. We'll create the, the format, the process by which this reporting and making the information public will occur. You just have to agree to it. You just have to sign on. And that's the real problem. The real problem is getting these institutions to admit to themselves why they don't want to do it which we all know that answer. One thing that I wanted to also point out is what the legislation would make available. So they would make available the number of members in the organization, the average GPA, and the total number of community service hours performed, and the number of disciplinary actions taken relating to sexual assault cases by the members. UCSA, which is co-sponsoring the bill with us, UCSA is the University of California Student Association. They along with us have other bill language that we are prepared to offer to the office of assembly member Rodriguez that we would also like this bill to include because we need a little more accountability and transparency than a GPA average and numbers. We need people to know what is going on, where is it happening, what fraternities are doing it and how often are they doing it. And with the number of disciplinary action, it's like the number of and and all out of how many cases, who wasn't, how many were not uh, followed through when there wasn't reporting, when there was no disciplinary action taken. So, you know, we have to fight a good amount still, you know, the long way to go in terms of getting other things adopted, amended, but it's a good start. It's on the table, it's released to the press. So we're, we're feeling, we're feeling really good about it, but there is an uphill battle because getting Greek life institutions and university institutions to agree to what we're going to re- require of them for us to support. That's the cultural question. It's like, are you ready to start changing the culture? And a lot of people aren't, you know, people are here for the money. They're here for the power. They're here for the name. That's what this is. It's all just, a, it's just a money game. And as a nonprofit, that's the antithesis of what we're here for. It's not about money at all. It's not about power. Obviously, if it was, we wouldn't be doing nonprofit. We would be a business or something. But, you know, it's, it's grassroots advocacy work that makes that transformative change and reform. And so, yeah, that's what I would think is going to be the hardest thing to get admin and Panhellenic community to say yes to are the cultural questions uh, because the money thing won't be an issue and they also have a lot of money. So it wouldn't really be an issue anyways, but it's not something they can fall back on. Mm. Kind of the last thing to close, we want to talk about allyship because it is a huge part of your guys' mission and membership. You know, what does it mean to be a good ally to survivors of sexual violence? That's a very loaded and big question. We're actually addressing allyship in our second issue of our winter magazine that we're going to release soon. So I think one thing about allyship, for some people, this has been a conversation for most of their lives, but in the past year, especially with the accessibility of advocacy and education on social media, the one recurring issue that will, it'll be an issue 
for a very, very long time is performative activism and the need for people to be labeled as ally instead of accepting that allyship is a lifestyle. It is a practice. And the thing with a practice is you'll never be perfect. Every great athlete has lost at some point. No one is going to be the best at anything. And especially if you are advocating for someone other than yourself, it is not the time for you to put yourself on a pedestal. The thing with allyship is it's not, oh, how do I be a better ally? Is how do I continue to practice allyship within my day-to-day life? A lot of times it's not about how much you can preach to me or how much I can preach to you. How can you set an example for the people who are watching you? How can you make sure that your words and your actions align? Words with nothing behind them is just lip service. And we get enough of that already from our government. I don't want to hear it from our advocates and friends too. And I think I really try to encourage the people in my life to re-examine that. Because when you begin to feel yourself uncomfortable, that is good. That's good. You should never feel comfortable in a conversation. I don't ever feel like I've arrived. There's no moment of enlightenment where the light bulb goes off and everything clicks. Kind of what Harper, you said earlier, you don't just watch one Gaucho FYI episode and suddenly you are the end all be all of feminism and intersectionality. (laughs) That's not how it works. And some of the greats will tell you that some of the greatest activists in our lifetime and before us have acknowledged that. And I think that's one thing to keep in mind with allyship is it is an ongoing practice. You'll never be perfect. You're not required to, that's not a requirement, is not to be perfect. It's to be self-aware all the time or as much as you can. And listen more than you talk. It helps if you just be quiet sometimes. And I I like that, you know, you don't always have to be loudest voice in the room because sometimes the loudest voices are the ones that are most wrong. So um, I I want that on a tapestry. I want that (laughs) engraved somewhere. (laughs) I'm going to tell my kids like, you know, be quiet for like the first six years and you will come out so much smarter. I promised you. Silence is golden. Yeah. Sometimes. (laughs) Obviously it's a practice an ongoing practice, as you've said, and that practice can be extremely emotionally exhausting when you're talking about, you know, sexual violence all day long. How do you take care of yourself when you're dealing with these heavy issues? And, you know, how do you present yourself from getting burnt out? To kind of call back on something that Chanel Miller actually touched on when she spoke with us via the fireside chat was placing yourself in nourishing environments to not only tell your story, but to hear others and to receive that healing. I think being surrounded by like-minded individuals, being surrounded by people who understand how emotionally taxing, how thankless, but how necessary this work is, is something that's helped me keep my sanity. I think a lot of times when you're asked to talk so openly and honestly, especially every day, being on Zoom, talking in every single meeting about how do we address this issue and what do we do now? I never realized how much it's taken a toll on me until like the end of a week after like 13 meetings. And I'm just like, that's all I've talked about for months. And what also something Chanel Miller said is something 
a lot of the emotions that that are evoked when you're talking about these things they're they're just responses whether it's a trauma response whether it's you learning and you're molding and figuring out how to react to these types of conversations it does not say anything about you categorically we are more complex than that and we should give ourselves the room to integrate humor into the dark be angry grieve and i think just allowing myself the space to express my emotions even when i don't really want to or i'm like this is not the time like a lot of times especially women you know emotions have been the thing that the patriarchy has saying that is what makes you weak that is what makes you less than and you know as we've seen and if it's so obvious with the with the previous presidential administration emotion is not the thing that makes you weak the thing it makes you weak is lying to yourself because then you'll just lie to others and you'll be so comfortable with lying you you're just not a real person and there's no way that you can connect to other people's experiences or be honest about your own and so you and you have to connect in this space you have to connect to the work you have to connect to the advocates and the survivors so the nourishing environments and i think this is one of them you all have definitely fostered a nourishing environment for me today so i'm very very thankful for that this type of stuff helps keep me afloat and keeps me grounded i know exactly what you mean by saying that this is a thankless job but all of the work that you and sasa are doing is not thankless and it does not go unnoticed and we're so happy you came on the podcast today so thank you so much for joining us well thank you bye now i'm like wow that was cathartic like it was like (laughs) having many therapy sessions like pseudo therapy (laughs) thank you all really If you'd like to learn more or donate to SASA, check out their website at sasa-ca.org. You can also find the nonprofit on Facebook under the name Students Against Sexual Assault and on Instagram at sasa.sb.ca. For the UCSB chapter, search SASA UCSB on Facebook and sasa.ucsb on Instagram. Here are some other hot headlines from the Daily Nexus. Daily Nexus opinion staff writer Noah Ropp discusses President Biden's pledge for unity and makes the case that he will be able to heal divisions in our country. The Women's Network opened a new chapter at UCSB this past fall. The organization seeks to help women achieve professional growth through workshops and speaker events. UCSB sports are back and happening. The Gauchos women's basketball team broke a five-game losing streak with a win against the University of Hawaii last Saturday. They go on to play Cal State Bakersfield this weekend. Special thanks to our guests, Deborah Williams, and to the rest of the Hot Off the Pod team, Emily Kosis, Josh Manti, and Tony Schindler-Ruberg. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and check us out on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter for more Hot Off the Pod content. See you next time.